So when I was doing research for this message, I came across an interview with uh, Pastor Charles Swindoll. If you're not familiar with Pastor Swindoll, he served as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He later served as the chancellor there at DTS. He has gone on to write about 70 different books on Christian living and theology. He um, leads a, a ministry called Insight for Living. It's a radio broadcast. He founded it and is still the main speaker on there and still is on staff at Stonebriar Church in Texas. All of that made the interview all the more disturbing for me because in the mind of so many, Pastor Swindoll is kind of a model of what it looks like to be a pastor to the church and to, to follow Jesus. Now, in the interview, what he did is he shared about what it was like to be a pastor in the 1960s and 1970s, which for some of you is ancient history. How many of you were alive in the 60s? All right, some of you. Okay, good, good. All right. Um, but uh, it was a different world in the church. And for Pastor Sundal, that season was incredibly difficult because of the struggles his wife had with her emotional and mental well-being. She was deeply clinically depressed, and it led to her, while she was physically present in their home, emotionally, she was absent from their marriage. She was absent in the raising of their children. He felt like he was kind of on his own and keeping up the house. And when it came to having somebody who he thought was going to partner with him in ministry, his wife wasn't able to do that. In fact, at times, her depression was so severe that she was suicidal and had to be hospitalized. Now, if that wasn't hard enough to hear, it was even harder to hear Pastor Swindoll talk about how virtually he and his wife were alone in all of this. See, at that point in the, in the history of the church, you didn't talk about things like emotional health or mental well-being. It was just, it was taboo. In, in that point in the church and its history, you, you would never hear somebody say, well, I'm feeling anxious or I'm wrestling with depression or I'm feeling overwhelmed with the trauma of my past. People didn't go there. It was assumed if, like, if you've given your life to Jesus, when it came to your emotional health and mental well-being, you were just happy, healthy, and whole. And for somebody who was in pastoral ministry to talk about struggles with that themselves or to share that their spouse was struggling with that, they, they could lose their role in their church. And so Pastor Swindoll, he did not talk about that to his fellow pastors. He did not talk about what was going on with his elders. He did not share that with his friends in the congregation or outside the congregation. He and his wife dealt with it alone. In doing so, nearly cost the church the gift that Pastor Swindoll has been to the church for decades. Now, the temptation would be to think, well, that, that's, you know, that's how it went in the 1960s and 70s, and you know, we've gotten past that now. No. Again, and getting ready for this message, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal, written in 2020. And the article, it chronicled what was going on in the lives of some pastors here in the United States, just three years ago. And the article pointed out that federal law actually protects people with disabilities, and it would include people who have issues with their emotional and mental well-being. But 
employees of the church are exempt from those protections. And the article then went on to tell the story of a number of different pastors who, when it came out in their churches that they were struggling in this area of their lives, they got ran out of their churches. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, is this Mike's way of telling us that he's got some you know, mental health issues? It's not, it's not. And I get some of you are thinking, I don't know, that would explain a lot here, you know? No, it's my way of pointing out that here in the church, across the country, more so in some churches than in other churches, there's an attitude that's held when it comes to emotional and mental well-being. It's it's an attitude that has led to the church embracing a myth, a myth that has robbed the church of oftentimes seeing God's truth in this area of our lives and hearing God's encouragement and message of hope in this area of our lives. Now, if we haven't met, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today, we are starting a brand new series that we have entitled Heart, Soul, and Mind. And in this series, we're going to spend some time talking about what the Bible has to say about this idea of emotional health and mental well-being. And in weeks to come, we're going to talk about things like uh, depression and anxiety and discontentedness. But, but today, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on this idea of this myth that comes with our emotional health and well-being. And, as, as we, and today and in, in weeks to come, what we're going to do is we're going to borrow from others. We want to give credit where credit is due. And so we'll borrow from um, authors like Craig Rochelle and uh, Charles Hodge and Max Lucado and more. But today, we're, we're going to focus in on the myth. And so and we're going to do so because for, for so many people, this myth, it keeps people locked down, just leaving today. We had somebody who was here for first service, and as they were leaving today, they came to me in tears, just going, thank you so much for talking about this openly in church. For, for so many people, the myth has kept people just pinned down, and so we're going to get after it. Now, before we do, we're going to take a minute and pray, and we want to pray for our time together but we also want to pray for Chris and Rebecca Hurt. If you aren't familiar with the Hurts, they, they're missionaries who we partner with in Thailand. They're on our screens, giving us an update about four weeks ago. And yesterday I got an email from, from Chris and Rebecca, and it asked us to pray for Chris and for him and Rebecca and for their kids. And it, it was kind of vague. It just it let people know that he's having some kind of significant health issue. They thought initially a week ago it was the flu. It hasn't cleared up. It's only gotten worse and it's gotten so bad that they have to move him to a different spot in the country where he can get some appropriate medical care. Um, This week coming, they're going to do a CT and a PET scan and try and figure out what's going on. And so we want to pray for them, pray for our time together, and then we'll jump into things. So let's pray. Father, we want to pray for the hurts just uh, for Chris, for your hand of healing and your hand of mercy on him and on his body. Father, I pray you would help him to get to a place where he can have appropriate medical care, that you would help the doctors to figure out what is going on. 
and how to best treat it. Father, we pray for Rebecca, just the anxiety that's got to come with your spouses really sick and they don't know why, for their kids, uh, for the fear that can um, be part of this for them. Father, I pray you would pour out your spirit on that home, that you would bring peace and that you would bring comfort. Father, I just pray you would meet us this morning. You would help us to hear from you, to hear your truth, and to find hope and encouragement in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, when it comes to this idea of our, our emotional and mental well-being, there's a myth that, that's been held in the church. And again, with some congregations, it's just right out there. People will state it. And in other churches, it's kind of beneath the surface, but the attitude is there. And if you're going to state the myth plainly, it would, it would kind of be like this. If you love God, and if, if you're living in a relationship with him, then you won't have any problems with your emotional and mental health. If you love God, if you've, if you've put your faith in Jesus, these just aren't going to be issues for you in your life. It's not going to be a problem. Now, we're calling this a myth today because when you take this statement and you, you hold it up against logic and you hold it up against Scripture, it falls apart. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to run this statement through the lens of logic and Scripture and see that because, again, we have people who all their lives, as they've been around church, this is the message that they've received. Sometimes loud and clear, sometimes it's implied, and, and they just feel trapped in the midst of this. And again, this doesn't make sense when you consider it through the lens of logic, and when you hold it up against Scripture, it just falls apart. So we're going we're gonna to run it through both those lenses today, and we'll start with logic. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to the myth, the myth seeks to support its claims by telling us that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, certain things happen. That, 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 that we're redeemed and justified and forgiven. That when we have faith in Jesus, his, his, his Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and it empowers us. That, that, that God begins to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That, that he's, he'll never leave us or forsake us. And what, what the, the folks who hold to the myth will say to you is, hey, these truths, they're right out of the Bible, and they are inconsistent with nonsense like depression and anxiety and fear and trauma and the like. Now, the myth, it starts with a faulty premise, and it comes to the conclusion of, hey, you love God, you live in a relationship with him, you're not going to have any issues in this area of your life. And the idea that these biblical truths, and these are biblical truths, the idea that these biblical truths are inconsistent with any struggles in your mental health or emotional well-being, again, it, rests, it all begins with a faulty premise. And the faulty premise is this. When I surrender my life to Jesus, he instantly fixes the broken parts of my life. The thinking is, hey, I give my life to Jesus and all the things that we saw on that list, they're now true of me. And so he just instantly fixes any problems I'm going to have with my emotional health or mental well-being. Now, here's the, the crazy thing. While we'll believe this premise and, and go to the places that it will, the conclusions that it will take us to, when we believe that about our emotional well-being, 
we know this is crazy. We know this is wrong because it doesn't, it doesn't apply to all other kinds of areas of our lives. It breaks down. For example, if I overeat like crazy and it's nothing but bacon and cheeseburgers and, and um, you know, mozzarella sticks, deep fried, you know, you know, it's just a matter of time before I'm going to be hypertensive and, and pre-diabetic and I'm going to be generously described as fluffy when it comes to my physique, all right? We know if I give my life to Jesus today, that doesn't mean that my labs are going to clear up and my blood pressure is going to go down and I'm going to have a six-pack, right? You know, never mind the gym. I just get me some Jesus abs, right? And I'm going to be good to go. It's silly, right? Or if I overspend like crazy, I, may, I, I spend more than I make, and when I go shopping, Plastic Fantastic is my best friend, right? Giving my life to Jesus today is not going to clear up my credit score or chase off my creditors tomorrow. If I'm doing poorly at work and I'm, I'm on a performance plan and I really don't put forth any kind of effort there, giving my life to Jesus today is not going to you know, lead to a promotion and a raise tomorrow. If I'm blowing off the homework and I'm not studying for any kind of tests, giving my life to Jesus today is not going like, to improve my grade point average and give me a great SAT score tomorrow. It's not like, okay, I have faith in Jesus, hashtag college bound. It doesn't work like that. We know this. You know I mean, if I'm blowing off my marriage, you know, I treat my spouse like a roommate rather than a soulmate for so long that we've lost that loving feeling. Giving my life to Jesus today is not going to lead to red-hot monogamy tomorrow. We, we, we know when it comes to relationships and finances and vocation and more, this premise is faulty. But for some reason, when it comes to our emotional and mental well-being, the church for years has pushed this premise to lead to these conclusions. And so the church will say to you, hey, you know, you're, you're following Jesus now. You're redeemed, you're justified, you're forgiven, you're Holy Spirit filled. God's working all things together for good in your life. He's never going to leave you and forsake you. And all of these things are true. But these truths don't instantly fix your, 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 your health and your finances and your relationships. We know, oh, hey, these truths become a reality for me. And now I need to begin to conform my mind to the truths of the scriptures. And I need to begin to live my life in a way that reflects these new truths that I have embraced. And over time, it will begin to bring change to these areas of my life. And it's no different when it comes to our emotional health and mental well-being. All of these things are true. When I, when I enter into a relationship with Jesus through faith, all of these things are true. But if I'm going to begin to, if I'm going to experience hope and healing and change when it comes to my emotional health and mental well-being, I'm going to need to realign my worldview. I'm going to put God at the center. And I'm going to begin to live my life in a way that reflects this new worldview and over time experience change. The myth that if I love God and I'm living in relationship with him, then I'm not going to have any problems with my emotional health and mental well-being. It just doesn't hold up to logic. And not only does it not hold up to logic, it doesn't hold up to Scripture either. See, you can find all kinds of examples of people in the Bible who loved God, who lived in relationship with Him. 
and who struggled in these areas of their lives. And so what we're going to do next is we're going to look at a few of them. We'll start old school. We'll go Old Testament, Psalm 88, a psalm that's written by a guy named Heman. Now, as a child of the 80s, I feel like I need to clarify between Heman and He-Man. All right? Anybody remember He-Man? Yeah? All right, good. You, 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 really, Alec? You're a little young for He-Man. All right, so He-Man had an incredibly successful cartoon series and an equally successful line of action figures, all right? And He-Man, he, he and all his friends who were just as immodestly dressed as he was and just as muscular as he was, they were all taken on Skeletor, right? And through the power of Grayskull. Did they have He-Man in the UK? Oh, bummer. All right. So they're, they're trying to be, you know, Skeletor and his evil brood, right? And, and, and it, you know, like... My, my younger siblings and I, we were like glued to the TV when He-Man was on. And my, my younger brothers, they had all the action figures and I was trying to be a good older brother. No, I wanted to play with them as well, right? We had a great time. And so I had visions, you know, my younger brothers and I, we all had visions of someday growing up and looking like He-Man. And you can see how that worked for me, right? All right. He-Man is not the same as He-Man. Right. He-Man is a guy in the Old Testament. In fact, you go to BibleGateway.com, you just put his name in there, and you can just like, do this study and discover all these things about this guy. Heman, Heman was a guy who loved God and lived in relationship with him. Heman was a guy, who, he was a musician, a talented musician, who didn't just play music, but who led God's people in worship. He was a government official. He did just incredibly successful in that vocation. He was the kind of guy who would have been a, an elder in his church. He was a family man. He had a whole pile of kids and, and successfully communicated and passed his faith down to his children. Heman was the kind of guy you would have respected, who you would have wanted in your life, who you would have gone to for advice. And yet, in Psalm 88, we see Heman in, in a play, just in a season where he's struggling. And so, as, as we read this psalm, which is really a prayer, that the psalms are ancient Hebrew prayers that were set to music and then sung in their version of church. Listen to where Heman's at. He starts this way. He says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night. When? Day and night I cry out to you. My prayers come before you. Turn your ear to me. He was like, God, I am praying. I'm praying all the time. Would you please turn your ear this way? Because it doesn't feel like you're listening. Now, why would he feel like God wasn't listening? He tells us why next. He says, he says, I am overwhelmed with, tr with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. Now, I, I don't know about you, but this sounds to me like somebody who just might be wrestling emotionally. And, and where is Heman going to lay the blame for this at? Like, who's he going to point to and go, hey, this is, this, this is your fault? Listen to what he says next. 
As he speaks to God, he says, you, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. In other words, God, this is your fault. This is, this is your fault. I feel like just emotionally, I'm as good as dead, and you're to blame. He goes on and he says next, he says, you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Can we agree? This is somebody who might be wrestling with their emotional well-being or mental health. Heman continues. He says, I call out to you, Lord, every day. Like, we might be tempted to see, see how this guy is feeling, what he's saying, be like, oh, well, this, this is somebody who's not staying connected in a relationship to God, or somebody who's maybe walked away from faith. He's saying, no, I call out to you every day. I spread out my hands to you. This is a man who is chasing hard after God and still finds himself in a season of struggle. A season he continues to describe this way. He says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? He's like, God, this, this feels like it's killing me. And if you let it finish the job, what good is that going to be to anybody here? He goes on. But I cry out to you, Lord, for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why? Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your tears and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. Now, it's at this point in most psalms of lament where the, where the writer is complaining and, and just unloading on God that the writer will shift that the writer will like, like move in a different direction and begin to offer some kind of hope. And that's where they'll end their psalm. Here's how he ends his. He says, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I am alone. You've taken everybody from me. And now my closest friend is darkness itself. Again, this is a man who loved God, who lived in relationship with him, who did great things for God, and yet he had a season like this. Listen, if, if there are times, in your, if you're in one right now, there are times in your life where you just feel like, I just feel like life is killing me. I feel like God isn't listening. 
the Bible's a book for you. If, if you have ever felt or you feel now like emotionally, mentally, things have taken me to this place where darkness is my closest friend, that is not incompatible with being the kind of person who loves God and lives in relationship with him. Now, since these examples are so cheery, let's look at another one. All right, let's, let's go from Old Testament to New Testament. Let's talk about the Apostle Paul. If anybody had loved God, lived in relationship with him, if anybody had an impressive spiritual resume, it was Paul, right? Like, like Paul, Paul authored about half the books in our New Testament. Paul traveled 7,000 miles over Europe and Asia, planted churches, planted about 14 different churches. Paul did incredible things for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul was not popular with everybody. There was resistance that he experienced with that. So, you know, there were, there were people who, who hated Paul, who badmouthed Paul, who tried to get Paul arrested, who falsely accused Paul of things, who beat Paul, who chased him down, who tried to kill him. And, and about one of the seasons where he was struggling, Paul writes to one of the churches that he planted, and he says this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. As he begins, he's like, listen, you got troubles? We got troubles. We understand troubles. Let me tell you about the kind of trouble me and my crew experienced when we were planting one of these churches. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. He's like, all that opposition brought so much stress, we were at the breaking point. It was like there was a weight just pushing down on top of us so that we couldn't breathe. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. He says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. When this is what you're feeling like, you are probably beginning to struggle with your emotional, mental well-being. And this is Paul. This is a guy who wrote half your New Testament. Like, churches everywhere. This is a guy who did amazing things for the kingdom of God, and yet he finds himself in a place where he's like, I, things were so difficult, I felt like I was under the sentence of death. Now, if not Paul, how about Jesus? See, Friday comes, and it's going to be good for some of us. It's going to be anything but good for Jesus. Jesus knows the horrors that await him with the crucifixion. Jesus is struggling. And so like Heman, he cries out to his father in heaven. And in Mark's biography of of Jesus' life, Mark captures some of what Jesus was going through and some of what Jesus was saying. Mark writes this. He says, when they went to the place, they went to the place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow 
to the point of death, he said to them. Jesus became deeply distressed. In the original language, this carries with it the idea of shock and fear. Jesus became deeply distressed. He was troubled. Again, this, this word that we have translated as troubled, in the original language, it carries with it the idea, like what Paul was talking about, this weight just pressing down on top of you. Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow. He says, I am overwhelmed with sorrow. This carries with it the idea of deep grieving and sadness. And for Jesus, the emotion was so strong, he said, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Like Paul, he is despairing of life itself. If you've ever found yourself in a place where you're distressed and troubled, where you're overwhelmed with sorrow, you're in good company because that's where Jesus was at. And if anybody ever loved God, it was Jesus. If anybody ever lived in relationship with him, it was Jesus. If anyone ever did great things for the kingdom, it was Jesus. See, this idea, if I love God and I live in a relationship with him, I'm never going to have any issues with my emotional and mental health. It is a myth. It's not scriptural. It's something that we have made up. Listen, if you are struggling here, I want you to understand something. It's okay. It's okay to struggle here. Now, like any other area in our lives where what we're experiencing isn't lining up with God's best for us, we don't want to stay here, but you don't have to beat yourself up for finding yourself here. This is a myth. So here's what we're going to do in the weeks to come. There's some things that we're not going to do and some things that we're going to do, and we'll start with the nots, all right? In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about depression and anxiety and discontentedness. We are not, those of us who are leading those conversations, we are not going to try and be something we are not, all right? Like, we are pastors. We are not mental health professionals. I've got, I've got a bachelor's degree in psychology. I'm not qualified to diagnose, to, 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 to prescribe, or to do significant you know, treatment. That's just, it's not my lane. I, I'm, I'm a spiritual health professional, not a mental health professional. Now, I will be honest, and this bugs me as somebody who likes everything to be in its box. Sometimes those two worlds overlap, and they're gonna in weeks to come. So get ready, the peas are gonna, make, you know, the peas are gonna touch the carrots, all right? It's going to happen, right? And if you're like, I want everything to be neat and orderly, life just doesn't always work like that. But as best we can, those of us who are leading these conversations, we're going to try and stay in our lanes, and we're not going to try and pretend to be something we aren't. At the same time, though, as pastors, we, we are meant to be guides to the church, to try and help people see, where does the Bible talk about the things that are relevant to our lives? And the... The topic of emotional and mental well-being is increasingly relevant in our culture today. And so we're going to just be like, hey, let's talk about this. And, and the goal is that 
if you've ever wrestled with depression or anxiety or discontentedness, that you'd be like, oh my goodness, there it is in the Bible. There, there's somebody in the Bible who's wrestling with this. I am not alone. And then the, the other thing that we're going to try and do is try and help you see, hey, here's where the Bible speaks a message of hope and encouragement and even put some tools into your hands to help you begin to think differently and to live into that new worldview in a way that could move your life in a healthier direction. And so our, our, our hope, our prayer, our goal in the weeks to come is that as we take time and we look at these truths and we look at, at them through the lens of Scripture, that all of us, on a greater level, would experience God's love with our hearts and our souls and our minds as well. Would you stand with me, church? As we continue this morning, we're going to finish in worship, but before we do, we want to pray. And again, the myth will say to you, hey, you just give your life to Jesus and everything is instantly better. It just isn't true. But I'm telling you right now, I can face the challenges in my emotional and mental well-being alone in, in my power, or I can face those walking in a relationship with Jesus. I can't encourage you enough to go with the latter, to face these things by ourselves and in our power alone is a recipe for disaster. To have the God of the universe walking alongside of us and helping this, us in this, it can be a game changer. And that begins with a right relationship with God. Where I come to God and I just confess to him that I am broken, that I have sinned, that I need a savior. And putting my faith in Jesus and what he did on my behalf. And all those things that we're talking about on that list, those things become true of me. And then God begins the process of changing me. And so if today you're in a place where you know you need to begin that relationship and you're ready to do so, we're going to pray. I would invite you to pray with me. And then we're going to continue in worship. Father, we just, just thank you just for your truth and how relevant it is to our lives and how relevant it is to an area in our culture that just increasingly is a reality for so many. Father, for some of us here today, we've been facing that reality alone. And we don't want to do that anymore. And so today we want to come to you and just get our relationship with you right. Father, we just we come to you and, and we confess. We have lived as though we have the right to determine how our lives should function. And doing life ourselves, we've made a mess of it. God, we have sinned. Forgive us, please. Forgive us because Jesus came on that Good Friday and he died in our place. We just put our faith and our trust in what Jesus did to make us right with you. 
Help us, please, just to follow him. And Father, just for any of us who are watching online, any of us who are here in the room today for whom this is a struggle, I just pray that you would meet us if we have believed the, the myth, the lie, that you would help us to let that go. And Father, I pray you would just meet us in the weeks to come. Encourage us. Give us hope. Help us to see what the path to healing can look like. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.